Hello all, David Oakes here, and guess what? It is that woody time of the week again. Yes, you are listening to Trees A Crowd. Now, if you're listening to this on the very first day of its release, that would be the 2nd of November, it would mean that 74 years ago today, Howard Hughes flew a plane. The Hughes H4 Hercules. For 70-odd years, that plane held the record for the largest plane ever flown, with the record only being broken in 2019. But what makes the H4 worthy of mention on this podcast, I hear you ask? Well, in an attempt to help the war effort during a time when metal was in short supply, Hughes's H4 was made predominantly from wood. And, as such, the H4 became nicknamed the Spruce Goose. In reality, the wood mostly used was actually Birch, but because birch doesn't rhyme with anything that flies, the spruce goose was so branded. If only Hughes had been designing a submarine, for then he could have wonderfully called it the birch perch. Anyway, this week's trees are neither birch nor spruce. No, this week we're looking at trees number 46, 47 and 48. The Limes of the Genus Tilia. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. On the British Isles, growing wild, we have two native limes. We have the small-leaved lime, Tilia cordata, and the broad or large-leaved lime, Tilia platyphyllus. But we also have one native hybrid, formed when our two native species decide to get a little frisky. This is the common or European lime, Tilia europaea. Now, lime trees have nothing, I repeat, nothing to do with the citrus fruit of the same name. Limes suffer the same name curse, it seems, as the spruce goose. In reality, the name lime is most likely a corruption of the Middle English word lind, which means flexible, lithe, lenient and yielding, and hence you may have heard limes known by their other name, the linden tree. Now this lithe, lenient flexibility is most likely a reference to the mast fibre for which the lime, slash linden, tree gained fame for as far back as the prehistoric time, but more on that in a bit. It has also been suggested that this lenient and yielding name derives from traditional views of the lime tree as a representation of the woman, or the feminine. The lime is associated with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with the Norse mistress of the earth, Freya, the Baltic goddess of fate, Lima, and across Europe with a whole host of female characteristics such as fairness, freedom, and fertility. Speaking personally, however laudable these traits may or may not be, to me, this all honks of outdated patriarchal claptrap. The 16th century male botanist John Gerard, disappointingly, differentiated between our two native species, referring to the larger-leaved lime as the male lime, and the smaller as the female piffle. At the end of the day, limes are big, bloody trees with hermaphroditic flowers and are enjoyed by man, woman and neutra alike. It is one of our tallest and mightiest native trees, with the small-leaved lime reaching around 30 metres and the large-leaved a whopping 40. These days, the small-leaved lime is primarily a tree found in the warmer and drier southerly half of Britain. 
But archaeological research shows us that up until around 6,000 years ago, the small-leaved lime was the dominant tree across the country, or at least was as far as the north of England. This was a period when the climate was warmer than it is today, the so-called Atlantic period. By the end of this period, the sea level was about three metres higher than it is now, and our ocean supported shellfish that could survive in this sea of significantly lower salinity. The small-leaved lime flourished in these warmer conditions. Analysis of tree pollen in the peat deposits of the Lake District show that at this time, lime trees outnumbered oak and elm trees to a ratio of four to one. This prosperity suggests, unsurprisingly, that the genus Tilia is yet another that benefits from a symbiotic relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. This feature enabled it to talk its way into the oak forest and then gave it a competitive advantage over all other trees once the climate was in its favour. What is a bit odd about our limes, however, is that they are globally the only member of their entire family, the Malvaceae, that does interact with fungi in this way. Lucky limes. Today, lime trees are increasingly rare in the wild, unfortunately. Their decline coincided both with the end of the toasty Atlantic period and with the arrival of a massive step forward in human civilization, the arrival of linear pottery culture into Britain. This was the point in time where Neolithic man and woman learnt how to make simple pottery cups, bowls and jugs, albeit without handles. But why would this affect the lime tree population? Well, as well as reenacting that scene from Ghost, these Neolithic clay connoisseurs were also partial to a little indiscriminate slashing and burning of huge swathes of British woodland to make room for farming and, I presume, clay jug storage. We know this to be the case for there is an abundance of charcoal and ash in peat deposits that immediately precede the absence of any lime pollen. The limes rise and the limes fall means that a wild British lime tree is now a clear indicator of an ancient woodland habitat. Throughout the rest of Europe, however, the small-leaved lime continues to grow freely. As such, Tilia cordata is recognised as the national tree of the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Slovenia. The large-leaved lime, Tilia platyphyllus, is much less common than its small-leaved cousin, and to look at, in most respects, it is only subtly different. The bark is slightly deeper than that of the small-leaved, but without direct comparison that doesn't truly help all that much. The winter twigs of both are easily recognised by their deep red shiny buds. They look like tiny boxing gloves for pugilistic rodents. And the leaves of both limes are heart-shaped at the base, with one side invariably slightly larger than the other. In fact, the small-leaved lime's specific epithet, cordata, derives from the Latin for heart. The large leaves' scientific specific name, platyphyllus, simply means broad or large-leaved in Latin. The platy here is what also provides the root for the platypus's name too, which means broad-footed. And whilst we're talking about platypus, platypi, platypuses, platypodes, don't know, did you know that on top of everything else monotraumatically amazing about them, they glow under UV light and have venomous spurs on their hind legs? Amazing. Anyway, back to trees. The difference between our two limes is implicit in the name. Large-leaved limes leaves... Say that after a Lambrini, 
can be as long as 12 centimetres, and the small-leaved lime's leaves anywhere between 3 and 8. The buds of the small-leaved are also smaller too, but should you be in doubt, look carefully for hairs on the underside of the leaves. There is a scattering of white hair on the leaves of the large-leaved lime, whereas the hairs of small-leaved limes are orange and confined purely to the dense tufts in the armpits, i.e. at the junctions between the midribs of the leaf and the lateral veins. Now both our limes have wonderfully dense canopies. In the words of the slightly sexist Elizabethan botanist John Gerard, The linden tree waxeth very great and thick, spreading forth his branches wide and far abroad, being a tree which yieldeth a most pleasant shadow, under and within whose boughs may be made brave summer-houses and banqueting arbours, because the more that it is surcharged with weight of timber and such like, the better it doth flourish. But be warned, spend too much time beneath a lime tree and you might come to regret it, for limes are gloriously sticky trees. As with the sycamore, anything caught beneath it will be coated with honeydew. Aphids eat the leaves of lime trees and excrete the stickiest of natural goops. The aphids then attract a whole host of invertebrates further up the food chain, and their honeydew as well as the abundant nectar from the flowers attracts bees in their droves. The bees, in turn, have another quite grisly and surreal way of extending the lime tree's biodiversical footprint, but here is self-proclaimed bee boffin Bridget Strawbridge Howard to explain further. I've actually come across large numbers of dead bumblebees myself, underneath flowering limes, and they often have their heads or tails missing, where the birds have dissected them to get the nectar they've collected in their honey stomachs. In fact, I used to see piles of them every summer on the Malvern Hills, always under the same tree, and I was intrigued for years by the phenomena. Bees, whether in their best interests or not, love limes. Indeed, bees and limes are so interconnected that in America, the lime is often known as the bee tree. Thank you to Bridget Strawbridge Howard for that. And there is a full old-fashioned format Trees of Crowd interview with Bridget coming this very Friday. It is well worth a listen. Bridget is a delight and the interview is burgeoning with brilliant bee facts. Like some bees can pollinate plants just by using their buzz. But where was I? Yes, lime trees. The aroma coming off a lime tree when in full creamy flower, usually around midsummer, is unforgettable. This heady scent can be found in the bees ensuing honey and indeed in lime flower tea if you fancy infusing a few in hot water. In fact, insects in general love limes so much that your ears may well be the best way of identifying that a lime tree is nearby. For in the summertime, you can easily hear the invertebrate hum surrounding a lime tree well before you get the chance to set your eyes upon it. And it doesn't stop there. Lime leaves are devoured by a host of invertebrates, including the caterpillars of the lime hawk and the vaporer moth, which are two creatures that have to be seen to be believed, but let me do my best for you. Imagine a highly successful caterpillar glam rock duo. Now imagine a massive invertebrate ego-fueled hissy fit ensued one day, no doubt over something trivial like whether the short-leaved or large-leaved lime leaves tasted best. Anyway, this argument led to one half of our caterpillar glamrock duo heading off to examine the possibilities of invertebrate psychedelia, and the other went in the other direction and wanted to push the boundaries of plant-fueled punk. Now that 
may sound stupid to you, but I promise you that is exactly the best way to describe what the limehawk and vapor and moth caterpillars look like. Trust me. And when you discover that marshmallow, hibiscus, cacao, durian, cola nut, baobabs are all members of the Malvaceae alongside the lime, then the wealth of sensory opportunities provided to man, beast and psychedelic caterpillar alike is no longer so surprising. And if all that's not enough to get you salivating, lest you forget, our two limes can cross-pollinate to create our native hybrid, the common or European lime. It is quite rare in the wild in the UK, but has been found alongside both parents for as long as both have occurred in the pollen record, including during the last two interglacial periods. It's truly a native hybrid. Like small-leaved lime, the common lime has hairy armpits, but the hairs are not orange, they are white like the hairs of its other parent, the large-leaved lime. And as is typical of many hybrids, it grows taller than either of its parents, to around 46 metres. This lime hybrid is our tallest native tree. This is as big as it gets. This statuesque hybrid was worshipped by the Victorians who loved the big and the brash. They used it to line avenues and roads, through grand estates and parks. Indeed, should you find yourself in a Victorian park, chances are a common lime tree isn't too far away. But you won't be able to get all that close to it, for unlike its parents, the trunk of a mature common lime is often surrounded by a dense thicket of twigs. Now these aren't suckers which are aiming to help the tree reproduce, rather a mass of epicormic shoots that erupt from the bark. These are shoots that normally emerge from the top of a tree when its tip is lopped off or damaged. It's how the tree regrows after coppicing or pollarding. But with our hybrid, it just can't control itself and sprouts all over the place. Now, from very early times, limes have been coppiced by man. That is to say that they have been regularly harvested for natural resources, but without killing the tree. Coppiced lime trunk stools have been found with huge diameters. The largest found so far is 48 feet. Now, that is massive. To put it in perspective... The diameter of our planet's single largest tree, the giant sequoia, unfortunately named the General Sherman tree, is only 36 feet. This huge lime stool indicates that continuous coppicing cycles must have been conducted for somewhere between two and 5,000 years. That would take us back to not long after the period when small-leaved lime was the dominant tree in southern Britain. Such evidence makes these specimens some of the oldest living organisms surviving in the British Isles today. So what was the lime resource that made them so treasured? Throughout history, before the advent of artificial fibres, mankind has relied very heavily on natural fibres. We have made clothes from them, weaved baskets, even held Viking longships together with them. Natural plant fibres can be obtained from seeds, e.g. cotton and kapok, from fruits, e.g. the hair of coconuts known as coir, from leaves, the so-called hard fibres, and from soft and flexible bast fibres, such as jute. Now limes were, slash are, famed for their bast. Bast fibres are located immediately under the bark and are associated with the phloem. 
The phloem are the veins that transport sugars from the leaves, where they're photosynthesized, to other parts of the plant, notably the roots where the sugars are stored. Lined up alongside the phloem tubes is another ring of vertically aligned, thick-walled fibre cells which, along with the bark, provide the phloem with protection from the elements and would-be sugar hunters. It is these fibres that can be very strong, very flexible and very useful to humans. Bast fibres have been widely used from prehistory through to medieval times for ropes, fishing tackle and halters. Taxes were even paid in bast, where the sale of lime tree bark has been included in forest returns as late as 1297 AD. And these fibres are also soft and supple, making them perfectly suited for clothing too. Prehistoric shoes made from lime bast have been found all across northern Europe. Wooden lasts for shaping them have been found in excavations from around 5,000 years ago, and bast shoes were still being worn in the Russian countryside at the beginning of the 20th century. As well as the bast fibres, limes were valued for their foliage, fodder for man and beast, and for its shatterproof wood, which is soft and easy to carve. Lime wood is light in colour and weight and daintily fine in grain, attributes alongside the tree's association with the Virgin Mother that made it particularly popular for the use in religious carving. The sculptor Grinling Gibbons, whose name makes him sound like one of J.K. Rowling's supporting characters, preferred Limewood to create his highly revered church pews, his altarpieces, and even the panelling he created for St Paul's Cathedral, for Hampton Court and for Windsor Castle. His relationship with Limewood was so successful that he would ultimately rise to be the master carver for George I. Rumour has it, however, that Gibbons would cheekily carve closed pea pods into all of his designs, only carving the pods as open once he'd been paid. Throughout Germany across the centuries, the lime, or linden tree, possessed a somewhat split personality. On one side it served as a tree for lovers. Come May Day, villagers would occupy the shade of the dwarf linder, the village linden, and celebrate with a tanslinder, a linden dance. They would drink, cavort, and merrymake until the proverbials came home. But on the other hand, the linden also stood for justice and order. Traditional communities would again commune beneath the boughs of a linden, but this time the Gerichtslinder, the court linden. Here, legal proceedings were held, with the hope that the tree would restore order or unearth truths. There are, unsurprisingly, many instances of linden branches being used to hang the guilty upon, perhaps the single darkest purpose to which man has ever put a tree. But it is both these two sides of the lime tree that came together for Berlin's Unter den Linden, the stunning linden tree-lined boulevard leading from the Brandenburg gates at one end to the city palace at the other. Unter den Linden literally means under the limes and is a street of celebration and a street of civic order. Thank you all again for tuning in and for putting up with my rather croaky voice this week. I think you'd all agree that I could benefit not a little from some lime flower honey. But to close out this week's episode on our limes, something even sweeter. An earworm that fills one's head like the caterpillars of the lime hawk moth fill a lime tree. With lyrics by William Barnes and music by Ralph Vaughan Williams, indeed the first thing that he ever published... Here is my very, very good friend Louise Jordan with her take on Lyndon Lee. 
Oh, and to the uninitiated, a mossy moot is Dorset slang for an old tree stump. Bye-bye. Within the woodlands, flowery gladed by the oak tree's mossy moot, the shining grass blades timber shaded now do quiver underfoot, and birds do whistle overhead, and waters bubbling in its bed, and there for me the apple tree do lean down low in linden When leaves that lately were springing now do fade within a copse, and painted birds do hush their singing up above the timber tops, and brown leaved fruits are turning red in cloudless sunshine. Overhead with fruit for me, the apple tree do lean down low in Linden Lee. Let other folk make money faster.